As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. One of my dearest friends and greatest inspirations is here with me today. Her name is Laura McCowan. She's the author of We Are the Luckiest. Isn't it like already a bestseller? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. For those who are wondering, bestseller means 10,000 copies have been sold. Mm-hmm. Double that, deal. much more than that. Yeah, it was crazy. Yes, it it yes, um, yes, debuted yes. right at the top, at the, like it was Publishers Weekly bestseller list. Didn't hit New York Times, but. Baby, we don't we don't need that New York Times bestseller <laughs> list when you've got it in the hands of tens of thousands of human beings who desperately need it. That's bestseller enough for me. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's wonderful. You you've had a long and successful career in PR, and you kind of were raised in the drinking culture of advertising. And when you got sober. You became recognized as a voice in recovery. Your your writing has moved me from day one. You're so fucking smart. <laughs> Thank and you. And your your intelligence is matched. I'm just gonna say this by your soul. Oh. Like there's soulfulness to your intelligence, and that for me is pretty much everything. You have an award winning blog. Blog. You've hosted the iTunes top 100 home podcast and another one called Spiritualish. You've been featured in WebMD, New York Post, Bravo, Today Show. I say all of this because I want my listener to know we're talking to the real deal. And this is probably an important conversation for you if you are still wondering if maybe alcohol or some other substance that you're using to numb things or behavior that you're using to numb things might possibly be a problem. Yeah. I just remembered that you and I, the first conversation we had was when you came on home. That's right. Yeah. The very first. That's so funny. The very first. Um, so my first question, has your mom read the book? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Because you told me before we started talking, I have a funny first question. And was, it's so funny to me. I had to ask it. Yeah. Oh, yes. My, my mom, mom read the book. Um, and how was she feeling about her talking about Susan's friend, Cynthia, who is, I mean, the discomfort in all of this, it's the early part of the book. I'm around page uh, 84, 85. Yeah. Yeah. The discomfort is real. Dude. Yeah. There, she had a really hard time. You know, to be honest, reading it the first time, she she was really upset. Yeah. Um, you know, I had it. She was the one I was most nervous about because of my family members. You know, aside from my brother, who um, I don't. You know, there's no stickiness there. He's just amazing. Well, my mom's amazing too, but 
he's my brother. You know, there wasn't any um, discomfort or awkwardness. But with my mom, there was a lot of difficulty. And I told her before I had her read. I mean, what I wanted to do was fly to her, sit down and watch her read it, you know, <laughs> control the whole the whole thing. I was really nervous for her to read it. So I told yeah. her everything that I talked about, every scene that I brought up, every conversation, all of it. And she was like, okay, okay, you know, okay, that's fine. But when she read it, uh, she really had a hard time. Well, because that's when in that in that generation, if I may, mm. it's hard for them to like have other people see yeah. things that aren't savory. That's right. She, very much so. And she's extra that way, you know. Um, They're all extra that way. Well, that I was that time. They, they cared a lot. Right. Appearances mattered. They did. They did. And, you know, she came from my grandmother who appearances extraordinarily mattered, you know. So my mom kind of made her strides in progress and and I just jumped completely off the cliff from day one. I was never, I didn't, I wasn't that way. But anyway, she read it the first time. We had a difficult conversation because as everyone does, you know, we, we think it's about us. We internalize it, right? And she, as a mother, I, I knew it was going to be hard for her to read about me being in so much pain because she knew, but she didn't know right? No one really knew. And that was hard. No, any good alcoholic doesn't let anybody really know. Yeah, no, nobody really knew. So, but the, the great thing is then she read it. She said, I read the, f the first time basically holding my breath, you know, and, uh, and then she said she's read it a second time. And that time she was able to actually have some distance from it and could really appreciate it. So, it's helped our relationship in a major way. It was very, it was tough for a while. We had to have some difficult conversations and, and now it has opened up, opened us up much more. In the end, you know, she's, she's living with a kid who's a best-selling author who did a brave thing. So yeah. And I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. She's so proud of me and, and for all of that, but she, she, you know, what it comes down to, she just feels responsible in a lot of ways. Oh, that's so poignant. I mm. got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you as a mom could totally understand. You read something yeah. 20 years, 30 years later, and you go, oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. I wasn't there like right. this. I mean, it's just a natural thing for a mom to do. Oh, bless her heart. Yeah. Can you tell us, tell me and my listener the story about your, that last hurrah? <laughs> <laughs> if you will just so just so my listener can hear kind of what the yeah you know look for this look for this <laughs> look for this so do you want the hotel room story or the the year later story when I finally got sober I would like the year later story the hotel room story is definitely deep and good. yeah yeah but this I think this one is it's the year later if this yeah. is the year later one so the so for people that are wondering I the event that got me started on sobriety was this horrible night with my daughter where I left her unattended she was four years old but it took me a year more than a year of starts and stops and really trying to get sober and really understanding 
what the hell was going on um, and wading through some serious anger and grief and all of that before I finally did get sober. And the last hurrah, it was the weekend my mom, we were planning a surprise 60th birthday party for my mom. She used to live in the same state as me. And so we had all kinds of family fly in, friends fly in. It was a you know big party. And my brother and his wife flew in the Friday before the party. And I picked them up at the airport. They, um, we came back to my house and picked them up from school. And I was like, all right, why don't you guys, you know, Joe, my brother said he wanted to go show Jenny around his wife. And so I had them go with Alma. I had Alma go with them. Mm-hmm. And the the important part of this or the, I think the interesting part uh, and anyone who is in, addicted in any way can relate to this. It's like you start watching yourself do things. Like I knew there was nothing left for drink for me anymore in drinking. Nothing. My brother was not down with me drinking. No one was drinking with me anymore, right? So I was only doing it in private. Like it wasn't like drinking would have been okay. Like we were going to have some beers that night, you know, at the at the get together. It was like none none of this was okay. And I didn't plan it, but as soon as they took Alma away, I went to the liquor store. I was like watching myself go into the liquor store, getting some disgusting little <laughs> nips of vodka and a bottle of wine. And I'm going to walk around my town drinking. Wow. And I returned to the house a few hours later. It was visibly intoxicated you know, as if my brother wouldn't know. And I, we went to surprise my mom. This wasn't the night of the party. It was the night before. Went to surprise my mom. And her face just fell because she was so excited to see my brother. It was surprised. She didn't know they were coming. And then she saw me. I was visibly drunk and her face just fell because this had been a year of, she was with me through the struggles. You know, she had picked me up in the hospital and all these things. Mm-hmm. So that was the last night. It was the most ridiculous sort of strange, nonsensical thing. And I woke up that next morning. That was the day of the party. I had to take my girl to soccer. I had to, you know, be a a hue. I had to pick people up from the airport. And I had such soul crushing anxiety. I mean, truly like when I think of drinking, which is rare, but when I do think of it, it's like, all I have to do is take one second to think of that anxiety and boom, it's over. It's gone. There's no desire. Right. And that was the last, that was the last night I drank. I, I struggled through that night, through the party. I was very hungover, very anxious, very upset, just so devastated with myself and that I was still in this place. And I ended up having a conversation with my brother that night in front of the party. I had taken a little leave towards the end of the party to go in my car and cry just because I was, I was exhausted. And, um, he came looking for me and we had a conversation out in front of the, the party. And he was just like, look, Laura, like, this is your thing. You know, this is your thing. And it was the first time I didn't try to get sympathy or try to I didn't add anything to the conversation. I just agreed. I said, yeah. 
Yeah. It is. There's a tenderness there. Totally. Totally. And, um, and a real surrender, you know, it's such a cliche, but it really was, it was like, I had run out of excuses and it was just in that moment, I guess it was something like taking responsibility, really taking it for the first time. Like this is never going to get easier for me. It's just, it's just done. And, uh, that was my last hurrah. Page 190 of the book, what this all boils down to, I think, is a message of belonging mm. to a love bigger than anything you could possibly fathom on your own. Yes. An impossible, intractable, love that word, mm. impossible, intractable love, an indestructible one that exists inside of you right now, always. Yeah. I've learned and I keep learning to be a kinder witness to myself first. Some moments are harder than others because some aspects of myself are far more difficult to face than others, <laughs> like weakness, like neediness, like jealousy. But I practice and I am reminded and I continue to try. Over the years, being alone with myself, especially in meditation, has become something I crave and appreciate rather than something I fear and avoid. Not always, but more often. <sighs> You make me cry whenever you <laughs> read my words. I don't know what it is. Your words are are balm for me, mm. healing for me. They go right into my into my cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is that belonging. I mean, I I think some other part of the book I said something like, you know, it was I was talking about loneliness because such a big part of when you realize this thing, whatever your thing is, is no longer going to work, there's a pushing off. And between that pushing off and where you arrive, there's a liminal space. There's an emptiness of sorts, right? And, a, and an aloneness. Mm-hmm. And so I talk a lot about loneliness in, um, in the book. And I said, I think it's not loneliness that we fear, but not having a home within ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I had always looked for belonging elsewhere in anything, anyone. And, and certainly in drinking, it took away the pain of, of not feeling it. Right. And, um, and that's, that's definitely what sobriety has given me more than anything is at home in me. I'm not afraid of myself anymore. Right. In page uh, page 215, each little step I took to make something mine, every time I owned some small aspect of my world, took care, tended to it, I felt an almost shocking sense of pride. These are the small things you're talking about, mm-hmm. play dates, replacing a light bulb, the things that we would just sort of gloss over as addicts become these enormous accomplishments. Oh. Um, so much of this part was quiet, internal, and went largely unnoticed day after day. Nobody was sending congratulations cards for changing the light bulb. These weren't things anyone would post on Instagram or gush to friends about. It wasn't the stuff of a big, splashy life as I had long envisioned it, but rather a slow, steady march. This is for the listener who's wondering if this is for you a slow, steady march towards something so much more substantial. I was finally growing up. 
that's it. That's the whole, for me, that's like kind of the whole thing. Yeah, it is. It is. It's why the book ends with a chapter called The Nice Little Life, because that's having a nice little life is all of that growing up. It's simple, but it's not easy, right? Mm. It's simple, but it's not easy. There's a lot of work that goes into that nice little life so that you can have ease. And it is the tiny things. I'm so proud of myself when I get my inspection done on time. And I today I ordered birthday treats for my daughter's birthday. Like I just wasn't doing any of that stuff. I thought that Carolyn Knapp said it so perfectly. I read it like 10 years ago in her memoir, Drinking a Love Story, which is still my favorite addiction memoir. And she said, I thought, I thought that um, growing up would be a byproduct of time passing. <laughs> and it's not, you know, like you just, you grow up because time, it, as time goes on, but it's not, it's a slow ownership of your experience mm. of life. Yeah. I just want to leave a little space around that. <laughs> My God. It's, um, there's a whole work around when one gets sober. There's a whole work around what exactly it all means now that that's out of the picture. Yeah. If my listener is listening and thinking, well, I'm not going to be as cool or as fun or as hip or as interesting sober. Right. I know I had that thought. Did you ever have that thought? Of course. Of course. My two thoughts were, what if I'm boring and who will love me? <laughs> right. Yeah. What if I'm boring and who will love me? It's interesting because if you're sitting in either one of those two thoughts for any extended period of time, you will get anxiety. Of course. Of course, because we we have the the painful thought, but the story we put on top of it primarily that it's going to last forever is the anxiety. Right. And if you keep allowing the thought to persist as an event in your mind, that anxiety becomes a chemical presence. Oh, yes. Brain. You know what? I had the most amazing coach back when I was first sober. She, I think she was actually really good friends with Gabby. And she, um, and they got, they got sober together. What's her name? Um, Gina. Gina. She lives in Florida now. But they got sober together, like in the same building. There was a group of them. And um, she was the first one to tell me this. I never forgot it. And it helped me tremendously is that anxiety, because I had so much anxiety always, but especially in early sobriety. Because, um, well, she, she said, she said anxiety, because I kept trying to figure, what am I so anxious about? She's like, well, anxiety is not a feeling. It's the result of trying not to feel something mm. whoa i know let me just hang on to that for a second it's not a feeling it's a result of trying not to feel yes like that changed everything for me i'm not kidding i i have to write about that i forget about it and then every now and then it comes up it really changed everything for me and because then i just had to ask myself okay what what are you trying not to feel girl <laughs> 
which isn't an easy question, but it gets you somewhere. Whereas anxiety is just endless and nameless and mm-hmm. it, it, formless um, even. Yeah. It doesn't have anywhere to go. Uh, but what am I trying not to feel? Right. You can go somewhere with that. Well, it also points to all the behaviors that one does not to feel. And instead of blaming yourself for, you know, misbehaving or as you say on page 221 at this part that I really love, you were on a date and you said, rather than giving him premature access to my energy Mm. (laughs) or my body, I was suddenly, you were acting differently now that you were sober. That really, I just want to like put a whole lasso around that. Don't, don't give people premature <laughs> access to your energy. That's basically going to be my entire next book. <laughs> and scene. And scene. Yeah. Yeah. It gives it somewhere to go. That, um, But it's, this is a learned thing. Like what I want people to know, because you said, you know, if you're having this thought that it's going to be, you're going to be boring. Life is going to be colorless. And for a period of time, it does feel like that. And it's supposed to feel like that, right? It's, um, this is supposed to change you completely. And I don't mean that you are in pain for, for protracted periods of time, but you f- you're feeling everything. Mm. For, whereas you haven't probably maybe your whole life. I mean, I know I found ways to escape myself from the very beginning for very intelligent reasons, right? To survive my environment. We learn to do things. And so I had essentially gone through 25, 30 years of not really feeling a feeling all the way through. We don't get taught how to do that. And then it gets to a point where we think if I let that grief in, if I let that anger rip through me, it will kill me, right? So we we do everything we can to keep it at bay, but we don't, but we never can, of course. It, we never get away with that. And so those periods of early sobriety are full of everything and, and the pain, but alongside the pain comes the joy too. You know, alongside the grief, especially. I don't know if you've experienced this, like, you know, with the, the loss of your mom, like, Grief and joy are like these sisters. Oh my gosh, yes. Right? Yeah. And so... It just opens you up to a new level of capacity for feeling in general. So the joy is more uh, easily felt as much as the grief was or is. Yeah, it's like layers are removed from... It's like that direct experience of life. There's no more gods in between or filters or... And that's hard, but man, I wouldn't, that's what I was chasing all along. That's what I wanted the whole time. Was that clear seeing? That direct experience of life. I wanted that. Hmm. You have a, a, a little sort of, I don't know, I guess you would say like, it's you talking to the camera at a certain point, you're no longer telling the story, but on page two, 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 I kind of always look at that page and every book just to see what (laughs) happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to lay all these phases out for you. You're speaking to your reader right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because first of all, it takes time. 
But also, I know if you are facing giving up anything, you cannot imagine living without. And especially if you are facing sobriety, you cannot imagine that a life exists on the other side that you'd actually want to live. Mm. And even if you are years into sobriety, you might be asking yourself, this is all there is. Yeah. Sometimes people so new to sometimes people new to sobriety tell me they feel so completely overwhelmed by the mess they have to clean up or the work they need to do. They don't even know where to begin or how to prioritize. I tell them they don't have to plot it out. Life will present itself. One thing you can count on is that there will never be any shortage of opportunities for growth. <laughs> <laughs> I we love know, that. We know that's true. I love that part. You don't need to go out searching for ways to become enlightened. Just go sit in traffic, spend a few days with your family, and you'll find more than a treasure's worth of material. And this is the gold here. You only need to do the next thing in front of you. Yep. Be willing and open to receiving the assignments that come organically through the people and the tasks of a daily life. Extend the horizon of your timeline for improvement out about 10 years longer than where oh, you've said it now. I wish, oh my God, I'm so glad you brought that up. I wanted to know this. Right, me too. <laughs> Gosh, the things that I rushed. Oh, everything. And, and everything. It's like one of my therapists, we were working on some relationship that I was really having trouble with. And boundaries were new to me, right? And I, you know, we all are terrible at figuring out boundaries and setting them for like, like the first time I tried and failed miserably. She was like, oh, honey, <laughs> she's like, we're gonna, you need to extend that. This is like a 10 year thing, not like a, a 10 day thing. And it was, it maybe could have sounded devastating, but it was like, thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, thank God I have a little more time. I'm not supposed to get this, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's the process that's the gold anyway. Yeah, it's yeah. the process that's the gold. Like we never get there wherever that's, that is. We never get there. Yeah. For the person who is not quite where you were, I mean, in the, in the, in the next paragraph, you say this and know this, each step contains joy. Mm -hmm. If you decide to notice it. Even in the most difficult stretches of those years, of these years, pardon, I have been humbled just to be here at all. In this way, sobriety has forever changed my baseline. Everything difficult is only relative to the living hell I once inhabited. Yes. So nothing really is that difficult. But I want to speak to, because I, I know this to be true, but I want to speak to the, the listener who's listening right now, who's thinking, all right. I'm a little bit fucked. I don't, I'm not like in the curb. I'm in the gutter off of the curb with my head, you know, on the pavement. However, I do know that I drink too much. I do know that I want it too much. I definitely, definitely think about it more than I should. I plan for it or whatever your substance or behavior is. If it's sex, if it's work, if it's pot, whatever. Yep. Um, what do you say to those folks who will never have a real messy bottom, right. but who know that they need to stop? Oh, God, so many things. So it's almost worse that way. It, it, it is almost worse because this is a thing, person, you have no idea what's possible for you. No idea. 
That's great. On the other side of that thing, no idea. Like I say this all the time, if you could see even a fraction of what's possible for you, you would fall to your knees and cry. You really would. And that 20% of life force that this thing is taking out of you, maybe it's not taking 50% even or 80%, but it's, it's taking that 20%. That is where your magic is. That's your, that's your extraordinary, you know, it's not in the, it's not that you could be more productive or more, I don't know, better in better shape. It's like, oh, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. It's like, that's your connection to God. As I see it, that's your connection to to, to your true self. Mm -hmm. If you think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And that is that 20% is like infinite and that's what you're not getting with this behavior or with this thing that's what you're not getting yeah that's very good that's a really nice awareness for somebody to just hold in the back of your mind for a little while i i'll tell this story because um he wouldn't mind at all but i have a dear dear friend mm. who has not had any kind of bad bottom. He's had a couple bad nights here and there. He's, but he's been talking to me about his drinking for four years, five years, just at certain times that it's grating on him or that he wonders about it, you know, (laughs) but he would never qualify as an alcoholic. He would never would. He'd never, you know, he might answer one yes to that quiz and the rest is like, no. And his life is good. He's got a great career. He's got a great partner. But we did this great exercise with me and him and another guy friend of mine at the end of last year where we gave each other a blessing and a challenge for like the next season of our lives, next year or so, whatever. You're going to need to outline that little situation. At the end I know. You would love that. It's so um, we gave, we sat with each other and, you know, we thought about it. We, we like we're very deliberate. We took a lot of time and really thought um, because we know each other's lives very well, inner lives, outer lives. And we, my friend and I, the, so my, the friend I'm talking about, his name is Jim. The other guy and I both came to Jim without having talked to each other. And the the challenge that we both came up with for him was you got to let drinking go. And, um, and he did it. He did it. And he's on like, day 50. And I, I just had breakfast with him this morning with both of them actually. And he was in tears. He's like, you guys, Mm -hmm. I can't, I just can't believe this. Like it hasn't been super hard for him. He's had a a couple hard moments, you know, he's a musician. And so like after gigs or whatever, but it hasn't been hard for me, like him, like it was hard for me. But he's like, I cannot, like, just thank you for challenging me with that because I can't even believe how different everything is. Like, I can't even believe it, you know? So that's a tale for the, that person who might be like Jim. Well, you know, I think what, what ends up becoming different is all of the ways in which, as I was just saying, you plan for your next outing, your next drink, yeah. drug, whatever. You're always kind of 
scheming. Thinking about drinking, thinking about rewarding not drinking. yourself, not to reward yourself. Drinking also, or smoking pot or whatever, it also makes you feel like you're doing something. Right. <laughs> when in fact, it's like the net, it's like there's a void there. It actually subtracts. It's not just a neutral, benign time. Mm. It's like it subtracts your life out. And so you have to first recover that in energy the next day. You're always just kind of leveling out. You never get to pass a certain threshold of thinking, of intuiting, of any of it. It's just, uh, yeah, that, that was so, since you brought that up, I just, that conversation this morning for me was just so, I was afraid to tell him that, you know, because um, my experience was I didn't stop until I was in so much pain. There's literally nothing left. And so I have a hard time believing that someone could do otherwise, but I see it all the time. Most of the the people that the women that I work with aren't in severe trouble. Mm-hmm. In fact, they worry because most of the people in their lives would never under their, their worry is, but no one thinks I have a problem. How do I explain that? And then what do I do with the judgment of like, why are you doing this? And I think that's really shifting. I really, really do. Culture in general is shifting toward more acceptance of people in sobriety settings, recovery settings. Well, and seeing that not drinking is like a huge asset. Dude, and it's also a real relief for your liver. Oh, well, yes. Then there's that. You're... And it's all of your, your body, your brain. I mean, I could I could go off forever about how absurd it is to put that that poison in your body, but boundaries. Let's do this. Uh, page one hundred six. Mm-hmm. You outline what you call the pregnancy principle. One listener, this is for you. You're building a new life. Two, the life you're building comes first. Period. Three, anything or anyone that doesn't support the new life goes or nothing trumps the process meaning nothing gets in the way yeah yeah that the the pregnancy principle it came it came to me because a friend when she was like five months sober or something was really worried because she was gonna um, have friends over and she hadn't told them that she wasn't drinking and she was nervous about like doing the gymnastics do i have alcohol do i not have alcohol do i how do I say to them? Do I offer them something? Do I not offer? Do I explain why we there's no alcohol? Yeah, all that, which we do, right? Because, but, but this is a thing. And this is what it occurred to me when she, when she told me about that, I immediately thought of like, what's just a clear cut example of when we're not confused or feel like we need to explain boundaries. And it's when we're pregnant. And this isn't just for people who have been pregnant. Like you also respect a pregnant person around you. If you're a man, if you're a woman, whatever you, no one argues with the pregnant woman about not drinking or not eating certain foods, or if she needs to go to sleep or if she needs to not go out. And how is it any different when you are literally saving your life? Because even if you're not in a detrimental state of, of your addiction or your behavior, it is still the difference between you you quitting this thing, you you um, shifting into this new place where this is not part of your life anymore, is really the difference between just simply existing and actually living. So you are saving your life. It is that big. It's back to the question you just asked me. Like you don't even know what's out there on the other side of this thing. 
And so for me, that just, it's so clear. Like, this is the attention that you have to give it. This is the no bullshit that you have to apply to this. It's that, it's that big of a deal. And it should be treated with that much respect, as much respect as you would treat a growing life. It just cuts through all the crap. You know, it's funny. I wish I would have read that part about anything or anyone that doesn't actually support this process goes. Mm. I wish I would have read that. I, I spent a little too much time I know. Uh, on things that I, I shouldn't have. I think we all do. And I think that's the part of the process because you, we naturally want to keep, I wanted to just get sober in the background and not disrupt any of my life and not make things harder for other people or awkward or all that. And, and I just suffered more because of that. And you have to kind of experience the suffering. And I, I mean, I drank, it's a lot of what kept me drinking. And so you realize, um, yeah. And if that keeps someone, it's such a relief, like that first, no, (laughs) that first, no, I'm not going to go to that instead of the wavering and the mental gymnastics, the first, I'm just going to tell these people that I'm not drinking anymore. Yeah. Thank you very much. Your whole body just says, thank you. Your whole soul says, thank you. That's right. Mm. That's right. Which leads me to my next question, which is how do you talk about it to Alma? Oh, such a good question. And and it's the one I get asked every time I'm on book, book tour stop so far. And I, she's 11. So she is right. Still, I have like a tiny window before this is a real thing in her life. You know, she's still a kid, but this is what I tell people. Uh, I, the best parenting advice I've ever, ever received was from my first boss. And when I became a parent, she called me and she's like, I'm just going to tell you one thing. You're going to get all kinds of advice, but she has three kids. She's like, only answer the question asked. (laughs) And I was like, it's, the best advice. Only answer the question asked because this is the thing. They're always watching you. They're watching you way, way more than they're listening to you, right? So you trying to talk to them and to proselytize to them rarely ever works, but they're always watching. Alma has listened to me record home podcasts. She listens to me have very candid conversations on the phones with my, on the phone with my friends. So she's absorbing all the things I would say about alcohol, about sobriety, about all that through listening and watching me, right? And then once in a while, she'll ask me a question and I answer the question. And if she has another one, I answer the question. The times I have tried to talk to her about it, it just doesn't work. She doesn't want it. So... But specifically what I say to her is, I'm really honest, you know, like if she will bring me, um, we live in a drinking culture, right? She doesn't think, she thinks drinking is only bad for me because I had a problem because she sees all, most other adults around her drinking. Whereas she looks at smoking across the board as like, that's just bad and dumb, right? Even Diet Coke, she's like, that's just bad for you. So we've had conversations like that where it's like, okay, honey. I'm going to break this down. Alcohol is more dangerous than cigarettes for everybody. It's far more dangerous than Diet Coke for everybody, but it's just more socially acceptable. 
and she tries to fight me because she goes, but daddy drinks and this and this and this, but she's heard me. At that point, she's heard me, right? So the little seed is planted and that's all I care about. Um, I don't know what I will say when she is of age where that's a real force in her life. I, I mean, I, I hope that her just listening to me and watching me at this point, and she says, I want to be like you. I don't want to drink. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, that might be true, but it might not, you know, you're, you're, your own animal with your own destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just hope that I, I know for me, I know that she feels safe to talk to me. We talk a lot. I didn't talk to my mom a whole lot because of the generation, you know, that they, they were, they just didn't do that as much. Of course. And I hope that's, that's enough. Mm. I feel like um, I did a couple things with Jonah that, may or may not be useful in this moment. Mm, Yes, tell me. So the first was that as I was writing the spoken word poem about my recovery for the first, I don't know, year or so of my sobriety, I would practice on him. That's right. You told me that. So he knew it. So he knew, but he I, he doesn't know what he knew. Like he, yeah, it's a bunch of words. What is that? But he mean? internalized that somewhere. He has asked some questions now, and I, because he's a New York kid, I felt it very appropriate and, in fact, necessary to explain to him what every drug will look like. Yes. When it shows up in front of his face on the table at somebody's house whose parents are away. Yes. Every single This is what this pill is. This is what cocaine is. This is what weed is or whatever. Everything. Everything. And even then I have to, I had to say, you know, and there could come a day when four different kids bring four different pills and put it into the center, chop it up with a razor blade and then put them all together and snort them or smoke them. This is where you never, ever, ever. That is where you die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. could die. That is where, when you see that going on, instantly come up with an excuse as to why you have to go home and leave the premises immediately. Yeah. Because shit is going to go south. What, is Jonah 12, 13? He's 13 now. He takes yeah. subways by himself. Like, this yeah, is you're a- at a different, I mean, there's a big difference between an 11-year-old in the suburbs and a 13-year-old in New York. That's right. So you you do have to have that conversation. Yeah. I wanted him to be very familiar, savvy, comfortable even with the appearance of drugs wherever he is. So he doesn't look like that innocent fool who has no idea and then gets duped into doing which it. Which is like the worst for a kid anyway. That's like the they never want to look like they're, they're you know, that's almost worse than saying no to the thing. Correct. Um, so that's brilliant. Yeah. And I think that will be something like that will be Alma, you know, we will have that conversation in a couple of years. It's just at this point, it's more hypothetical. Yeah. I have uh, a last question and I think I'm going to spare you from my usual questions just because we've gone fairly long and I I like to keep these things to, you know, relatively dishwashing session time frame. (laughs) Okay. You have a quote on page 149 from the gospel of Thomas that goes like this. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Mm -hmm. What would you say 
for somebody who actually doesn't know what's within them yet. My listener who's listening, who actually is like, I don't know what my purpose is yet. Mm. How do I bring it forth if I don't know it? You don't, it's the same thing. You don't have to know. You don't have to try. You follow the next clue. I call it following the breadcrumbs, right? First of all, if you're using alcohol, drugs, this behavior, whatever, I mean, that, okay, to back it up a sec, like the addiction was actually killing me. The alcohol was actually, you know, physically going to kill me, but the, but that, that not using my potential was more painful. I knew it. And what he's saying, if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you was true. That was like the major turning point of my sobriety. I was like 22 days sober at Kripalu, had just done a Sean Corn weekend. I have the book right in front of me right now. It's always with me, The Great Work of Your Life by Stephen Cope. I opened to that page and I knew from that point on there is no more fucking around ever because it will kill me and it had been killing me. So what I say to that person is you have a Dharma too. Dharma means truth. It's that blueprint in your in you, that unique blueprint that is you. You have it. No one is without that. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's a profession or a job. A lot of people think it's it, it comes forth in their job, and sometimes it does. But it's more just becoming who you really are, becoming who you already are, and you you can't get there when you are tied down by an addiction. You never will get there. So you don't have to wait until you figure out what your thing is, right? What's within you. It's there. Mm -hmm. You have to mine for it. And it's just a, it's more of a process of curiosity and discovery. You follow the clues to me, and maybe this is true for you too. It's not like, to me, it's like, call that person. I'll be taking a walk. I'll get a hit with, of an idea. Mm, reach out to that person to see if they want to talk. I'll be in a meditation. It'll be like, no, you're going to say no to that. That's not right. But you're going to say yes to this. That's right. I have this weird hit that keeps coming. You need to go to Paris. Like I do. Like I need to go to Paris. I don't know why, but I'm going to go. So it's like following these breadcrumbs. And that's what's led me to this place, to this writing of the book, to this career that I have. It's not that I woke up one day and go, I want to be <laughs> a best-selling author. I mean, it did, but it was like, I want to be a best-selling author and I'm going to teach, you know, courses for people or retreats. It was like, I just want to, I want to know the truth about what's going on with me. That's what I want to know. And I'm going to write this thing right now because that's a question I have. And then 10,000 unsexy steps later, you start to uncover it. That's really good advice, woman. Thank you. That's good medicine. We don't know. If, I've, if I have learned anything in the last several years, just follow the signs. Follow such, the signs. It's such truth. And there, it's so it's fun that way, right? It's it like, is more fun. It's an adventure. It's an adventure. And you can't really mess it up. You know, it's like you try things. That's a big thing, too. It's just try things. Try things. They fail. They do great. Same. Great. <laughs> you know more information now and you do the mm -hmm. next thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does prayer mean to you? Last question. Mm. Prayer for me 
is a very specific, I, I do, I have like one prayer <laughs> and it's, I think it's from the Course in Miracles. It's where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? So when I'm praying, mm-hmm. I'm asking, I'm asking to be led. And the last part I add on to that, which is my part is speak to me in a way I can understand. <laughs> mm. Oh, that touches me. Mm. Yes. And it might not be words. It might just it's be never words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's those hits that you get or the little Paris. tiny voice, the, the, the little yes or the little no or the mm. no more. Yeah. I love you. I thank you for all of the great work that you are doing in the world to help so many people, including me. I love you too. I love you too. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.